Well, good morning to you. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm. We'll start in Psalm 3, where we left off last week. Today I want to give you an intro to something we call imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory. It's a word we don't use in our modern non-religious vocabulary. Imprecatory or imprecation just means judgment or curse. As you know, the book of Psalms is a book of praises or songs or prayers. And so these are, these are prayers or songs of judgment. They're asking God to expedite his judgment on sin and sinners. And as such, they make up some of the hardest parts of God's word. Essentially, they're just praying against what is against God. But the language is fierce, and the language sounds haughty. And again, this is because of that, frankly, some of the hardest stuff in the Bible. We see a lot of it early on in this book that we call Psalms. We see Psalm 3 through 7 having a bit of imprecation about them. They have judgment in them. Some Psalms are completely devoted to that, like Psalm 7. Psalm 109 is another one. Um, but some have a, a flavor of it, a line in it. We saw that last week with Psalm 3, just one verse having a, a judgment or a curse about it. So we see Psalm 3 through 7 that all have this kind of judgment. Psalm 8 is about the majesty of humanity and kind of ironic in the midst of all this judgment. There's Psalm 8 that says, how majestic is man? How amazing is it that you made him? And we'll talk about that in the future, but Psalm 9 and 10 also deal with this thing of judgment and curse. So what I want to do to begin this is read several sections from Psalm 3 through 7. Okay, so I won't read the whole psalm, each of these. I'll just read the parts that are what we call imprecation, the parts that are about judgment. So let's start in Psalm 3. Like I said, verse 7 was the one verse last week that we just read Drew and the others sang this psalm to us, and, um, and so I said last week we have to wait till this week to talk about it some more. So here we go. Psalm 3, verse 7, is one of these kinds of lines. It says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. It's really a statement and a request altogether. It's a statement of confidence, what will happen, and yet it's also something of what David wants to happen. Okay, look at Psalm 4, verse 2. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Think of that in terms of dealing with enemies and those you're praying against in some way. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. So just a bit in Psalm 3. Just a bit in Psalm 4 of this imprecation. Then look at Psalm 5. We'll start reading there in verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. 
Verse 9, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels, because of the abundance of their transgressions cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Psalm 6, verse 8, has more. It says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. The implication all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Psalm 7, we can read basically the whole thing. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground lay and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that's in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He's prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his head. In his own skull, his violence descends. And then a closing thanks. I'll give to the Lord, the thanks do his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Well, like I said, some of the hardest stuff in the Bible. So many questions come to mind as you're reading through that, I'm sure. If you're uh, a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, questions still come to mind as you read this kind of literature in God's Word. Probably more questions come to mind if you're a new Christian. And if you're not a Christian, probably questions don't come to mind, just revolt, just protest, just revulsion. So I want to anticipate many of those questions today. I want to seek to answer those questions from Scripture. I'm sure dozens of questions could possibly come to your mind as you read through this kind of uh, literature in God's Word, but... I think most of those can get answered by focusing on seven questions. So you notice on the sermon notes page on the back of your bulletin, there's seven questions there for us to consider about these kinds of psalms that are praying against what God is against and what is against him. The first is this. Are these really a holy part of the Holy Bible? 
Is this really a holy part of the Holy Bible? You might have noticed the front of the Bible says Holy Bible. Many of them do. Front page perhaps says Holy Bible. What that means is that Christians believe that this is a book which is not just a collection of old human, cultural, religious fantasy stories, but Christians believe this book to be a collection of books from different authors, different times, different places, even, in a sense, different cultures, but together they make up God's word. 2 Timothy 3 says, All scripture is God-breathed. It's like he spoke it. You say, well, I thought it was guys at different times, different places, different cultures who wrote it. And it is. It's both. That's why 2 Peter 1 says that prophecy isn't produced, you know, things that prophets write down. It's not produced by the will of man alone, but men spoke from God as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. They spoke for God. They wrote down their thoughts, wrote it in their own sort of grammar, their own style of writing. And yet, mysteriously, what they wrote is also God's word. It's holy, and all of it's holy. C.S. Lewis, on the, hand, on the other hand, wasn't so sure about that, at least when it came to these things called imprecatory psalms. C.S. Lewis, you might know him for being a great apologist. Uh, you might know him for writing some great devotional books, and many of his books are indeed great and helpful. But he's a good example of uh, someone you have to you have to approach with some caution. And it's a good reminder that we need to approach any author and any preacher with some measure of caution. You could read three great C.S. Lewis books. They could change your life, and then you come to his book on the Psalms. And if your guard isn't up, you could read, I think it's chapter 4, on these curses and find these words. Quote, In some of the Psalms, the spirit of hatred strikes us in the face like a heat from a furnace mouth. One way of dealing with these terrible, or dare we say contemptible, psalms is simply to leave them alone. But unfortunately, the bad parts will not come away clean. They're often intertwined with the most exquisite parts. We must not either try to explain these harder parts away or to yield for one moment to the idea that because it comes in the Bible, all this vindictive hatred must, must somehow be good and pious. We must face both facts squarely. That the hatred is there, festering, gloating, undisguised. And also that we should be wicked if we in any way condoned or approved of it. Or worse still, used it to justify Similar passions in ourselves. Not C.S. Lewis's finest moment, in my opinion. Although maybe you sound, maybe you think that that sounds like a a good explanation. Maybe you're thinking, well, what's the alternative? Well, I don't think this is the alternative. I don't think this is an option. The answer to our question, are these really a holy part of the Holy Bible, is yes. There are no parts of the Bible that aren't holy, that aren't given by God. 
and are in some way profitable, as 2 Timothy 3 says, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We either need to accept this book as a whole or we need to pitch it. We cannot buffet it. We cannot piecemeal it. Some things do seem contradictory. Some things do cause us to scratch our heads, but often the answer is made clear by rummaging through God's word, by comparing scripture with scripture and thinking and praying, and God shows us ways in which his word is consistent. These are part, a part of the Holy Bible. The second question that may have come to mind for you is, who is the enemy in these psalms? Who, who is David or whoever else writes them in, uh, in further psalms? Who's he writing against? I mean, are these prayers just the result of heated personal misunderstandings? Is this, is this just a guy that ticked David off? And hence, because he's King David, he has the right to, to write some real fiery, hellish prayers to God about these jerks. Well, the answer in short is no. In short, the answer to who these enemies are is this, that we don't know for sure exactly. They're usually groups, not individuals. It's complicated because we saw last week in Psalm 3, David is writing that one as he's fleeing from his son Absalom. Remember his son trying to take over the throne? He's trying to kill him. David's fleeing, and he's writing against his enemies. Remember, he prays or he declares that God will break their teeth, break their jaw. Verse 7. And yet David has a complex relationship here with Absalom because he doesn't want him killed. We saw that last week. In 2 Samuel, he loves his son. He's lamenting this broken relationship and this horrible uh, fighting that's going on. The short of it is we don't know exactly who the enemy is in these imprecatory psalms. But we do know this. The descriptions of these people are pretty serious, horrendous. Their evil is brazen, it's persistent, it's, it's conscious, not accidental. It's in your face. It's malicious, it's heinous. We've seen hints of that already in Psalm 5 and another hint in Psalm 7. Look at Psalm 10 now. Let's read a good chunk of Psalm 10 that gives us a description of what kind of person here David is praying against. We'll start in verse 2, Psalm 10. Here, not ascribed to David, Psalm 10 says, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they've devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there's no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. All of his foes, he puffs at them. No threat. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. He's sovereign. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. He eyes stealthily 
Watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed. They sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. That's what David is praying against. I think that already helps us see the nobility of what David is praying. The third question we could ask ourselves about these kinds of psalms is this, a little harder one. Doesn't the New Testament give us a different ethic? Doesn't the New Testament give us a different kind of ethic? I mean, Jesus said in Matthew 5, after all, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is what it means to be sons of the Father. This is what the Father does. The Father makes his son rise on the good and the bad. He sends food down and rain on the just and the unjust. So, be like your father, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus modeled this perfectly from the cross, didn't he? Remember when he prayed? Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He prayed for those who persecuted him. Paul in Romans 12 has a big chunk about this. Romans 12 in verse 14, similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. That almost sounds like the complete flip of imprecatory psalms, doesn't it? Imprecatory psalms sound like they're saying, curse, curse, curse. Enemies, curse them. And then Paul says, following Jesus, bless them, don't curse them. In fact, he goes on in Romans 12. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And by so doing, you'll keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now what should we say about this and how it differs from what we read in these harsh, heavy psalms of judgment? Well, if we can, just set that box aside for a bit, and we'll come back to it more at the end. I want to do this. I want to put alongside that box of verses, which we read there, Romans 12 and Matthew 5. Alongside it, I want us to note that there are some verses in the New Testament that, that also curse, that also speak judgment or pray judgment. We have to note those. It's not that the Old Testament is full of cursing and judgment and the New Testament is soft and gentle and only mercy. In Matthew 21, Jesus cursed a fig tree which wasn't bearing fruit. And if you think, well, that's not a very good curse. It's a tree. It's, I mean, all he did is pray an imprecatory prayer on a tree. It doesn't sound so wicked. Yeah, but it was a symbol for people. You see, he comes across this tree that's not bearing fruit, and he curses it, and it withers and dies. And his point is, Israel is not bearing fruit, and it's under a curse because of it. 
It's a curse. Every time Jesus says, woe, he begins a lot of teaching with woe. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, you religious, righteous, self-righteous, proud folks. Woe. Woe is a kind of curse, a kind of condemnation. In Galatians 1, verse 8, Paul said that anyone who preaches another gospel, even if it's an angel from heaven who shows up and preaches a different gospel than the one that you've heard preached from Paul and others, let him be accursed. It's it's like imprecatory in a word. It's judgment. It's condemnation. Let him be damned. He says the same word in 1 Corinthians 16. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be damned, judged, cursed. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, at the end of that line about letting them be accursed, he says, O Lord, come. Why did he put that at the end there? Just a separate thought? Or maybe he's lamenting the sadness of unbelief, the sadness of a lack of love for the Lord in this world. And he's saying, Lord, come and fix it. Yeah, he is saying, Lord, come and fix it. But that implies judgment, doesn't it? Let him be accursed. Oh, Lord, come. If you are of the accursed there, that oh, Lord, come is not a happy message. It's like what he says in 2 Thessalonians 1, where there the Thessalonian church was being persecuted for their faith. And Paul writes to them and says, Since God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and grant you relief, you who are afflicted, when will he do this? When will he Come back, repaying affliction for those who afflict you, and come back, granting relief for those who are afflicted, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And he goes on to say, he will inflict vengeance on them. His return will be the culmination of imprecation, the culmination of judgment, the culmination of the curses. So Jesus in Luke 18 said, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? No, I tell you, he'll give justice to them speedily. In Revelation 6, we get a picture of that very thing. In Revelation 6, martyrs are up in heaven before the Lord, and they say to the Lord, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then it says they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete until the number of martyrs are brought in to heaven. That's how long it will be. We don't know that number, but we know that the Lord is waiting. The Lord is waiting judgment. There will be judgment. And in heaven, people who don't sin will say, how long, Lord? So do you realize that any time we're praying for his coming, like John does at the end of that book of Revelation, one of the last verses of our Bible, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. 
that's in the family tree of these imprecatory psalms. You're praying, in a sense, for what 2 Thessalonians 1 said, relief and judgment, redemption and justice. You say, well, is there just no difference then between Old Testament and New Testament? There isn't a difference like this where it shifts from wrath to mercy, hard stuff to good stuff. Instead, what we see is God's plan unfolds because this isn't just a chaotic book. It's in many ways laid out like a history. And in God's history, here's how this theme develops. Both his wrath and his mercy are intensified in the coming of Jesus and in the New Testament letters and books. There's an intensification of both mercy and judgment. Because in the Old Testament, judgment was primarily focused on temporary judgment. Lord, take them out. Lord, stop them. Lord, hurt them. Lord, hold them back. But in the New Testament, judgment primarily is eternal judgment. It shows us that we're not sufficiently eternally minded when we think that the Psalms have harder stuff in them than the New Testament does. It shows that we think God killing someone is probably worse than sending them to hell. Oh, we would never put it that way. But we're bothered by this part, some of us are, and maybe less bothered by this other part. There's an intensification both of mercy and God's just judgment. The fourth question we could ask these kinds of psalms is this. Don't these psalms imply that God is cruel and capricious? I mean, what's it say about him? Who cares Old Testament to New Testament? What about God? What's he like? And in many ways, that's the right question to ask, especially if you're a skeptic. You're sniffing in the right direction if you ask how this relates to him and what it says about him. So let's do this. Let's look at the Psalms we've already read and look for descriptions of God's character and his ways. Okay, What, what did we read that, that said something about who God is and what he does, what he's like? Well, look at Psalm 5, verse 4. You're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. There's something of the basis for praying for justice and final judgment. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate evildoers. Notice it's not the psalmist who's saying, I hate them. Or let's start with this, I hate them. Therefore, will you join me in hating them? No. It's God who comes first here in the equation. They are primarily God's enemies. Look at Psalm 6, verse 9. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. One thing we see about God in these psalms is that God has a people and God likes them, not because of anything in them, but because of his desire to show mercy and to bring them in and he hears them. 
He listens to them. Look at Psalm 7. The first line gives us the same kind of hint. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. You are a deliverer from the pursuers. And then Psalm 7 verse 10. My shield is with God. He saves the upright in heart. He's a righteous judge. A God who feels indignation every day. Paul said in the New Testament, Behold the goodness and severity of God. And here you have goodness and severity. Two verses right next to each other. My shield is with God. In him there's salvation. He's a righteous judge. And he's angry every day. Psalm 9, verse 4 says, You have maintained my just cause. You've sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. So he's the king, he's in control, and his judgment is righteous. You can doubt it, you can say it's not, but his word says that it is. We believe it. Psalm 9 Verse 18 says, The needy shall not always be forgotten. The hope of the poor shall not perish forever. We see in these psalms that God cares about the lowly. He cares about the meek. He cares about the poor. Just just go read the Beatitudes of Jesus in Matthew 5. And one more reference about God himself. Psalm 10, verse 17. You hear the desire of the afflicted. He will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. He is against the kind of terror that opposes the oppressed, that that goes after those afflicted, those who are fatherless. He's against injustice. Now, We've already seen the descriptions of wickedness. And now we've seen the descriptions of God's character and his ways. So what you have is some people who are hell-bent on wickedness and rebellion, sticking it to God and opposing his ways in every way possible. And you have God who sees it, who is righteous. He's merciful to the humble, but he opposes the proud. He sets himself against the proud. You put those together and you've got trouble. You have fire. The matters that we looked at in Psalm 10, describing the wicked, they're, they're not trivial. And he's just and he's righteous and he's holy and he cannot ignore sin. We may not like that because we're of that group. Sinners. But we know within us that justice is right. Even if you're not religious, I think you have a a sense for and an interest in justice. An unjust judge down at the local court, you'd say impeach, get rid of him. If you can take a bribe and the bad go free, you'd say it's not right. Even if you don't have a good foundation for why that's not right. Or maybe it's just pragmatic because uh, we can't have those people running around and hurt someone someday, somewhere down the line. 
Even if you don't know why it's wrong to have an unjust judge, we know that it is. It's in us. We don't have to teach our children about fairness. When someone steals a toy from a two-year-old or a three-year-old, they might say, it's not fair. And it's not because mom and dad have said that so much and the two-year-old, three-year-old has heard that kind of line around the house. I, you know, I can't imagine any of our kids have picked up me saying to my wife, that's not fair. You got a shirt today? That's unfair. I want a shirt. I complain, but not quite that whiny. Um, how do kids know what's fair? How do kids know that stealing isn't fair? I don't know, but they know. Christopher Hitchens is a well-known atheist, and well, you could even say he's a militant atheist. I don't think he'd mind that term. And he has a place for justice. He calls certain things evil. Unfortunately, he doesn't have any place for that justice to be met. There's no final reckoning. He can say Osama bin Laden is evil. He can say 9-11 was evil. But in his scheme, in his worldview, Christopher Hitchens has, has no hope of that getting right at the end like Christians do. Christians believe that that there is a thing of justice, and it's broken in us. Our sense of it is broken so that we know that it's there, and we want it, but we don't want it for us. We want to make the rules up about what's just and what the judgment will be. But we do know that justice is there, that justice is real, that God ultimately decides what is just, what is the judgment. And we know that justice one day will be met. There will be a reckoning. And in some sense, all the imprecatory psalms are doing is acknowledging that. They're just acknowledging God is judge. There is sin. There is a judgment to come. A fifth question might be then, why would any decent person pray like this? Maybe you think, forget God. Righteous, unrighteous, take him out of the equation. Christian or not, why would you want to pray like this? Why would anyone seek to pray like this? Well, I want to take note of several, what we could call, motivations and limitations placed on the way this, these prayers unfold, okay? Motivations and limitations. What motivates the psalmist to pray this way and what limits these prayers from going further than they do? I'll start rattling them off. The first would be this. David knows quite clearly that he too has sinned and needs mercy and forgiveness. He knows that he has sinned. Psalm 6.1 says, O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me. He's saying, give me what I don't deserve. I, I deserve wrath. I deserve discipline. Be gracious. Have mercy. He prays similarly in Psalm 32. He says, blessed is the one whose, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. He says in verse 5 of that same psalm, I acknowledged my sin to the Lord. I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave my iniquity. Psalm 38, Psalm 51 are also prayers of repentance that, that show 
These writers in the book of Psalms know that they need grace. They need mercy. They're, they're under God's judgment too because of sin, if not for God's grace. You see, the difference between the godly and the wicked in the Psalms is not that one is perfect and the other one just messed up a few times, but it really ticked God off, and so now he's really in trouble. What the Bible says is that the whole world is in sin. The whole world is under judgment. But the godly, the so-called godly, as we see in this book, are those who've been forgiven. There are those who've come to Christ. There are those who have recognized their sin and sought forgiveness in what Christ has done. So they're treated as holy, treated as though they're godly. And now they're restored to God. And in the process of relating to him and being conformed by him, they're being shaped into a new person, in a sense. They're part of a new creation. They're becoming more like him all the time. And hence, they're growing in a hatred of sin. And they're growing in a love for God's attributes, his holiness, his, his love, his mercy. Another thing we can say Part of a motivation or limitation is we should notice that there's some measure of self-suspicion in the Psalms. Did you notice that in Psalm 7? Look at verse 3. Oh Lord, if I've done this, if there's wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Now some Psalms are so confident It's black and white. They're the bad ones and I'm the the right one. But there are these other ones that are like this. There's some measure of self-suspicion. I might be generally in the right, but I might not be totally in the right. And Lord, you may use my enemies to actually show me that I've been worse than them. Both are true in the Psalms. Some things are black and white. Some things are more gray, but... But what we can see here is that the psalmists write these psalms of judgment knowing that they themselves have sin. The psalmists who write these imprecatory psalms are also not just thirsty for blood in judgment. They lament sin. In Psalm 119, verse 135, you have a great line there. The psalmist says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Heartbrokenness over sin. It doesn't start with anger. It starts with heartbrokenness. You also see that many of these psalms are simply asking God to allow the inevitable destructive consequences for this sin to come about. Lord, let them just fall into the pit. Lord, let the pit that they have dug for others be the means by which they are defeated themselves. They live by the sword, let them die by the sword, Lord. Let them sow what they reap. No, other way around. Let them reap what they sow, Lord. That's all some of these psalms are saying. And there are some little hints of Hope that the wicked will repent and turn and embrace the God who they rebel against. Psalm 7 verse 12 says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. 
Implication? He could repent and God will put away his sword. He could turn. He could flee his sin and run to a merciful, righteous God. Also in Psalm 83. Listen to this. This is a, this is a hopeful judgment. Pursue them, Lord, with your tempest. Terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame. That they may seek your name, O Lord. Don't take them out. Just scare them. Rightly, in love, scare them. So they know that you're the Lord. So they know they can't deny it anymore. They know the beauty and glory and righteousness, power of the one. They rebel against. We also have to note that in these psalms, really the psalmist is just acknowledging that the wicked are already under judgment. The psalmist is not placing them under judgment. He's not enacting their judgment. He's not the avenger. Only God can do that. He's simply acknowledging they're under judgment, Lord. So bring it to pass. And bring it to pass in part for the glory of your name. You see, there's a Godward focus in the motivation of praying like this, at least in this inspired book of the Bible. It's not personal. I said it already. I'll say it again. These are first and foremost God's enemies, not David's enemies. It's God's will that's being disregarded. It's God's ways that are maligned and mocked. It's God's fame that's thrown into the mud. It's it's his authority and power and judgment that's questioned or denied. And so much of the concern in these psalms is that God's ways are being impeded. God's plans seem to be, from a human perspective, seem to be held up. These are rooted in great promises given to Abraham in Genesis 12 and great promises given to David in 2 Samuel 7. God's going to do some great things. And when the enemies block that, they feel as though they have a God-given basis for which to pray against it. Lord, they're going against what you've promised. Remove them to fulfill what you're promising. And what you're enacting and bringing to pass. Part of that is God's desire to protect the uncared for, the poor, the the lowly. Remember in Psalm 10? Look again, verse 8. Where we see he sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in an ambush. He wants to seize the poor and draw them into his net. The Lord is not for this. The Lord, verse 18, does justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So, so much of these prayers here are driven by this motivation to protect the good, not just bring pain for the bad. You can also see it in that word picture we saw in Psalm 3. Remember, verse 7 said, break their jaw, crush their teeth, remove their teeth, knock out their teeth. What is that? That just, Lord, get them where it hurts. Make them feel stupid. Knock out their teeth so they have to go around without teeth or gold caps or something, whatever they did back then. 
No, listen to this. This is a great word picture. You see it in other Psalms. It's like the wicked are lions and their clasp has come down on God's ways and God's people and it won't let go. Break their jaw. Take out their teeth so that the oppressed are free. So that they're not locked up anymore in this bondage. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, it says in Psalm 58. In short, there are a lot of reasons to believe that it wasn't unrighteous to pray like this, especially at the time of David and around many of these psalms. Let's also ask quickly how Jesus and the cross fit into all of this. The sixth question, how did Jesus and the cross fit into all of this? It's an easy one. Galatians 3.13 tells us that he's redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We're all born under the curse. Christ became a curse for us, to redeem us, to free us. And Romans 5 tells us that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Christ's death signals this. He came to his enemies. His enemies crucified him. And yet, this is his plan to to save them, or at least many of them, all who will come to him, all who will acknowledge that in him there is salvation, mercy, goodness, and righteousness. It's amazing to think of these psalms in God's opposition to his enemies, God's opposition to sin, his anger, towards unrighteousness and rebellion, to know that we all have that, and then to hear the glorious message that Christ became a curse for us, that Jesus died for his enemies. I hope you know that, savingly so. And one last question. What do these prayers mean for us today? And probably the question you've all been waiting for, Can I pray like this? (laughs) Have you got behind a really slow driver from out of town this week? We, We love balloon fiesta here for the balloons. And we also get some folks from out of town who are here for balloon fiesta. And they've come to gaze at balloons. And I think they gaze at balloons, or at least they're looking for balloons, even in the afternoon when they're not out anymore. Because I've gotten behind a lot of people from out of town this week and thought, I'm not on vacation. (laughs) I know you like to think that you're up in a balloon right now as you drive seven miles an hour in the 45 zone, but I'm not in a balloon right now. Um, Maybe you thought about praying imprecatory psalms. On people like that. And by the way, if you're here from out of town visiting us for Balloon Fiesta, I wasn't talking about you. I'm sure you're a great driver, okay? So I was talking about other people. But before I answer that question, let me just say this. These prayers actually help us love our enemies. 
That's what Romans 12 is all about. I wish we could take the time to camp out in Romans 12 and show you there how important those words are. God saying, vengeance is mine. You don't need to deal with vengeance. It's not your job. You can let it go. You can love them. They can slap you and you can give them a drink and give them some bread. Because it's not yours to dole out this justice, this judgment that's to come. You can love your enemies. And you can find a radical basis for love to those who hate you. Because there is something to come. They will either find mercy in the Savior, or in the end there will be a reconciling of accounts. This actually tempers our anger. These psalms actually help us to place our anger in the right spot, to give it to God, to commit judgment to him. And they also help us to pray against what is against God, to pray for what is for him. So can we pray imprecatory prayers like this today? I would say a qualified yes. These enemies are not enemies because of something personal. These enemies are first and foremost God's enemies. It's his fame that is primary concern, not their comfort. There's a guard here, a qualification there. There's this fence right here. There's some things that the right response includes righteous anger. Be angry and do not sin, Psalm 4 says. But you better give it to him because even righteous anger can turn into unrighteous anger. You're not him. You give it to him. And probably the only thing I can think of that, that deserves something like imprecatory praying is persecution. Those who are directly and fiercely opposing God's people and directly and fiercely and violently opposing the spread of the gospel in the world, we should pray against that. We should know about it and pray for those who are enduring it. We should use these kinds of psalms to remind ourselves that It could come here someday too. Maybe not you, but maybe your kids will face this kind of thing of actually needing to pray that that the jaws of some who have clasped down hard would be broken for the sake of his fame and glory in this world. I don't know if there's other ways, other things to pray this kind of prayer for, but I think that's one of them, praying for the conversion of the persecutors and also praying for it to stop and committing the final judgment to the Lord.